1: We are less than two months away from the presidential election, and that means we are getting a constant stream of polls. National polls, state polls dealing with likely voters, registered voters. The numbers and information at time can seem overwhelming, but it is important. Now, polls and pollsters got criticized back in 2016 after Donald Trump surprised many people to win the presidency. Was that criticism fair? What makes a good poll and what are polls telling us about 2020? some of questions to get some answers. We reached out to Paul Brewer. He is a professor in the Department of Communications at the University of Delaware, also research director for the University of Delaware's Center for Political Communication. This is really good stuff. Give a listen. So I think any talk of how polling is looked at this year has to kind of start with the polling back in 2016. Of course, a lot of people were surprised that Donald Trump won the presidency. A lot of people criticized polls for not being accurate. Most had shown Hillary Clinton expected the way. So is the criticism from 2016 valid? And really, how off were polls, if at all? Good questions. So The polls, if you just look at the numbers, the
0: polls suggested that Hillary Clinton was more likely to win than Donald Trump in 2016. Now, notice what I said there, more likely. So the the first thing to remember about polls is that they're not statements of certainty. They're statements of probability. So the kind of the science, the statistics behind polls is all based on probability theory. So polls tell you the likeliest outcome, but they don't tell you a certain outcome. And with any poll, there's going to be error. Even if you look at a group of polls together, there's going to be some built-in error to that. And so one thing that pollsters talk about is average polling error. So what that means is for any given election cycle, on average, the polls are going to be off a certain amount. So if we look at some tallies, so I was looking at uh, this website 538, the Pew Research Center, the New York Times, they all have not just polling operations, but polling analysis operations. And so the best Best figure I can give you is the average polling error national polls is around four points. That means that in an average presidential election, the polls are going to be off four points. That's your best guess for uh, sometimes they're going to be off one point. Sometimes, like in 1980, they're going to be off more like eight points. In fact, nineteen eighty was a bigger polling error than twenty sixteen. The reason that we don't talk about that one as much is because people expected Reagan to win, and he still won. He just won by a lot more than the polls said he was going to win. So that's at the national level. At the state level, there's actually even more polling error for reasons that we can get into as we go along. So if you look at 2016, the national polling error, if you look at all the polls and look at how far they off, how, how far off they were from the outcome, the average polling error was three points. Now, that's actually a little bit smaller than the average. But in 2016, it mattered because that three points was the difference between victory and defeat for Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And actually, if you look at national polling, of course, we don't decide presidents by a national vote. But if you looked at national polling, it predicted that the polls predicted that Hillary Clinton was going to win the popular vote. She did, not by as much as the polls said she did, but the the polls were pretty close on that where the pollsters really ran into trouble, but also, you know, it's not just the pollsters fault as I get to as well is the state polling had that five point error in a few key States, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, that polling error uh, was enough to make a difference. So, you know, they predicted that Clinton would win in those three States Trump actually won by less than one percentage in all three of those states. And that's what tipped him over in the Electoral College, which, of course, is what actually decides presidential elections. That's kind of the big picture view. And then maybe if you've got some, some specific questions, I can talk about whether the polls are skewed towards Republicans or Democrats. I can talk about why polling error matters sometimes and why it sometimes doesn't. What specific issues might have come up in 2016 and how pollsters could fix them, whether they're shy Trump voters, and why are there differences between national and state polls, and what what polls can we trust and what polls should we be skeptical of? There are a lot of things we can talk about.
1: Yeah, and there are, that's all on my list. My next question kind of, was there anything that pollsters missed maybe in the statewide polls in 2016 as far as demographics or anything that they realized afterwards and they've been able to course correct, maybe giving people a little more confidence that they'll be more accurate this time around? One of the big
0: issues that came up in demographics and looking at the state polls, especially in 2016, was education. So most reputable pollsters wait or statistically adjust for whether their poll sample looks like the public that they're trying to say something about. So they'll look at the age of their sample. They'll look at the gender breakdown of the sample. They'll look at the race and ethnicity of the respondents in the sample. And if those are off, they'll adjust the numbers so that the poll sample looks like the public sample. Uh, what some state pollsters didn't do in 2016 was do the same for education. Now, in the past, that might not have been that big a deal. because There wasn't necessarily a big gap between what more educated and less educated voters were doing when it came to choosing who they're going to vote for for president. In 2016, it mattered more because a bigger age gap, a bigger education gap emerged between uh, Trump supporters and Clinton supporters where uh, Clinton started to pick up a lot of support from college-educated voters, and Trump picked up an unusual amount of support from voters without a college education. And so the national polls, a lot of them were already waiting for education, so they took care of that. But the state polls didn't necessarily reflect... This this emerging education gap, and so going forward to 2020, that's one thing that's been discussed a lot in the polling community is the importance of waiting by education to reflect what's going on with college educated versus non college educated voters in kind of the Trump era of politics.
1: You mentioned the idea of the the shy Trump voter, and that is a a concept we hear kind of thrown around by a lot of pundits and talking when they tend to want to dismiss polls. Do we have evidence that there is a a group of supporters for the president that don't like to say they're supporters for the president, but can be counted on to vote for him? So that's a very popular theory. It gets discussed a lot. And kind of the consensus taken in the polling
0: community right now is that there's not a lot of good evidence for the shy Trump voter theory. And let me explain a couple of reasons why pollsters think that this is not going on. One is that If voters are reluctant to tell people that they're going to vote for Trump, then one logical outcome of that would be that the results of live telephone interviews and online surveys would be dramatically different. Because we know that people are more willing to say things in an online poll that are not socially desirable than they will when they're talking to a live person on the telephone. But there's not a big gap between what live telephone polls and online polls or automated polls tell us. So if there is a shy Trump voter effect, it's not showing up where we would expect it to show up in differences in how we do surveys. The other thing is, if there's a shy Trump voter phenomenon, then we would have expected Trump to overperform the polls compared to other Republicans in 2016. Uh, But that didn't happen either. Uh, 2016 was a polling error, not just for Donald Trump, but for Republicans across the board. So if it's uh, some kind of uh, shy voter phenomenon, it's not a Trump-specific phenomenon. So those are the two reasons, two main reasons why pollsters and polling analysts
1: are pretty skeptical about the shy Trump voter theory. How much does polling, how much more difficult, I guess I should say, polling in the middle of a pandemic, how much, if at all, does that put an asterisk on things?
0: Uh, You know... I've done some polling during this pandemic period, and talking to the, you know, the survey firms, my impression is it hasn't had that big a direct impact because these days polling is largely done by telephone. Increasingly, it's done online, and people aren't going door-to-door for these surveys, so it doesn't actually have that big a direct impact. What is going on kind of in the bigger picture is that it's gotten harder and harder to get live people on the telephone. So response rates for surveys have gone down over decades. You know, Back in the good old days, of the golden days of telephone polling, you could get 30%, 40% of the people you called. Now you're lucky if you're getting 5 to 10%. And that has potential implications for how we interpret poll results. So I'm not aware of
1: the pandemic making this more of a challenge, but it's already a really big challenge as it is. To that point, what is the, the future of polling? Because I don't think that respondent rate is going to, Increase. We're go- that's the road. People don't want to be bothered. I could speak for myself if a number comes up on the ID and it's something I don't recognize, nine out of 10 times I'm not going to respond to it. So, what's the future to make sure that we're getting accurate samples and accurate information out there?
0: Yeah, it is a big dilemma for, for the polling community because what that lower and lower response rate also means is you, if you want to do a high quality telephone poll, it gets more and more expensive because you have to do more calls. You have to pay for those callers. And in the end, you get results that you're not as confident in. So what a lot of polling has been doing, a lot of pollsters have been doing, has been shifting to online surveys. So in the early years of the Internet, when there was a big digital divide in terms of who was online and who was not, pollsters were rightfully very skeptical of this. But partly because more and more people use the Internet and because traditional telephone polling has gotten more and more challenging, researchers have done more and more to try to explore this. And so there are ways. Obviously, you just can't stick a poll on a website and get a representative sample of the public. But there are polling organizations like the National Opinion Research Center and YouGov. What they try to do is they try to get a representative sample of people who agree to take part in online surveys. And so if you see YouGov polls, they're based on this sample of people who they've done a random sample. And then they try to get those people to agree to take part In their online polls, if they don't have internet access, if they don't have computer access, they pay to give them access. So there are some polling firms and some researchers who are trying to make online polling more scientific and more reliable. Still, with all of its difficulties, live telephone interviewing is the gold standard in polling. So if you're looking at individual polls and trying to say, well, should I trust this poll or not? Rule number one is look at all the polls and not just any individual poll. But rule number two would be to look at the methods. Is it a live telephone interview, or is it online? Is it a, what's called IVR, interactive voice response, where it's basically robo-polling, and you like press one if you are going to vote for Trump, press two if you're going to vote for Biden. So there's a lot of little details in the methods that it's sometimes worth digging into to see how a poll
1: is done. And that was my next question. We do get, I think, even people that are just casual followers of politics. You just get bombarded with numbers and polls and likely voters and registered voters. And what are, are there a couple of keys that people can look for to, to what you were talking about just a moment ago, but in addition, that things they should look for that this is a, a, this would be a more high quality poll than X would be a more high quality poll than Y. Yes. So there's a number of things
0: you can look for. One is the organization sponsoring the poll. So most of the major media outlets, ABC, Washington Post, uh, NBC, New York Times, CNN, Fox News, they all have reputable polling organizations that use gold standard polling methodologies. So, and you know, you might notice that I threw both CNN and Fox in there. Both of those organizations have polls. They don't, they don't try to put their finger on the poll results there might be what we call house effects where fox polls show Republicans doing a little bit better than c n n but if but if those are reliable house effects then we can we can say, okay, we know how to correct for that so who's doing the poll what How big is the sample so you're looking for a sample size of at least five hundred to a thousand if you're below five hundred, then the margin of error is really big, and the poll results simply aren't really telling you very much because if it says you know 50% Biden, 40%, 45% Trump, but a margin of error, plus or minus seven points. Well, that's a pretty big, pretty wide margin of error. So who's sponsoring the poll? What is the sample size? How did they do it? So is it live telephone interviews? Is it online? Is it IVR? If it's live telephone interviewing, that means it's probably the methodology is stronger. Do they say anything about weighting? Are the results weighted by age? Are they weighted by education? Are they weighted by gender? Are they weighted by race and ethnicity? Those are all good things. On the other hand, if they weight by party, that's kind of a no-no in the polling community because party loyalty is not a demographic. It's something that can change. And so if more and more people think that they're Democrats and you say, oh, well, I know that 27% of the public is Democrats and you apply that to a new poll, you might be making a mistake. So those are three key things. But again, the... Number one thing is to not pay too much attention to one poll relative to what all the polls say. So there's a lot of kind of excitement and sometimes breathless reporting. Ah, this one poll shows something new and unexpected. So, you know, after the conventions, a poll comes out and says, oh, it's tied in Florida. That means the race is now a dead heat. Well, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. We have to wait and see what do all the other polls in Florida say. So not getting too excited, too attached, to one particular poll, but looking at the trend in polls and looking at the average of polls is what I
1: would advise
0: And a poll consumer to be an informed poll consumer. That's what you want to do.
1: And just to bring it back to the 2020 race here. And once again, almost all the discussion I hear from pundits when they talk about polls in 2016 and say Joe Biden is leading. There will always be the yes, but Hillary Clinton was leading in this state at this point four years ago. But it seems to me, if I remember correctly, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Hillary Clinton's lead in 2016, while she had it for the most part, it it seemed much more tenuous and it was much more, I don't want to say volatile, but it would go from five to two, maybe down to one, then up to four. It feels like, for the most part, Joe Biden's leading in most of these polls, and it's been relatively steady. Am Am I making too grand uh, a statement here, or what would you say about what we see in these polls in 2020? I think what you said there is actually right on target. So if you look back at the polls 2016,
0: uh, most of the way Hillary Clinton did have a lead, but there were times when Trump pulled even or maybe even a little bit ahead. For example, after the Republican National Convention, Trump had a uh, small, non, you know, within the margin of error lead, but there were points where that race looked really close. Uh, On the other hand, in 2020, Biden has had a about a three or four point lead to about an eight or nine point lead since March. So, in fact, the 2020, if you look at the polls, the polls are remarkably stable. Usually you see more volatility in polling. Now, that doesn't mean that there can't be volatility towards the end. Uh, there, there are relatively few undecideds up to now. So that does limit the potential volatility. But still, you know, now is the point in time where people start to pay attention and there's a lot of dramatic things going on in the world. So the polls could move, but a lot of dramatic things have happened already. And the polls, have not they've moved a bit up and down. You know, we're talking a few points. But, yeah, so Biden has had a steady lead and it's a bigger lead right now. So I mentioned earlier the average polling error. So Hillary Clinton's lead in 2016 was within the average polling error. Biden's if if he's really about a seven or eight point lead, that's outside of the average polling error. Now th- you can get a polling error that's bigger than the average polling error. That's why it's the average and not the you know absolute polling error. But Biden's lead up to now does look different in some ways. Than Clinton's lead it looks more stable. It looks bigger.
1: And my final question. I don't know if I want to use the term wildcard, card, but we're going to have universal, not universal, we're going to have widespread mail in voting, absentee voting uh, across the board. It's going to be a much different situation. How much could that change the game? Uh, you know, certain states have done it consistently for years, but a lot of places will be doing it on a wide basis for the first time. So, uh, how much does that figure into things?
0: I think the biggest question there, so, you know, the states that have done mail voting, mail-in voting, mail voting over the years have generally had really good track records and experiences with it. So I'm not as worried about the, you know, the process. Obviously, you know, there, there are a lot of issues that come up, some legitimate issues, some legitimate concerns about are people getting their mail-in ballots in time? Uh, is the post office prepared to process those? But I think the number one thing that I'm concerned about is, the counting of those mail-in ballots. So some states do it really quickly. Some states might be doing it more slowly. So if the outcome is uncertain in, on election night or even the day after the election, if the mail-in results are substantially different from the in-person results, how do, how, how do, how do news stories interpret that? How do campaigns try to spin that? Because the final count sometimes looks quite different from what the early returns look like on election night. And of course there are gonna be exit polls, which are a whole nother story on election night, but you know, they have their own limitations as well. And early returns plus exit polls can sometimes not provide a full picture of what, they, what the final vote tallies are gonna look like. And I guess with that, I would urge any kind of poll consumers and, and election night news watchers to bear in mind that the vote counting is a complicated process and that sometimes it's important to wait until it's clear what's happening before putting too much weight on what one
1: side or another says about what these early returns mean. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.